Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Dorian Linsky. On this week's podcast, the fate of the union. America is choosing its next president, but will we even know the result on election night? And could Donald Trump still win despite everything? Plus, the fallout from the EHRC report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. After Jeremy Corbyn's suspension for the party, is Keir Starmer in a civil war whether he wants one or not? And were you still up for Pennsylvania? We take a magical trip back to election night 2016. What were our panellists doing that night and what are their reflections on a traumatic four years? All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome to The Bunker, our first panel show on a Tuesday. We're moving the show forward today so we can tackle the weekend issues a little faster and create a little clear blue water between us and our newly relaunched sister podcast, Oh God, What Now?, the podcast formerly known as Romaniacs. There'll still be Bunker Dailies on Monday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, so why not subscribe and make it easy on your iPhone? Let's meet this week's political task force. First up, it's broadcaster, author of the book Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse and regular on the podcast formerly known as Romaniacs, Nina Schick. Hello, Nina. Hi, good to be here, Dorian. Um, well, the nation is gearing up for a second lockdown as Boris Johnson performed a, a inevitable U-turn on Saturday. The Tory MP WhatsApp group was reportedly nuclear over the new measures. Nobody's happy. They seem particularly unhappy. Um, what does this U-turn mean for Johnson's premiership and his relationship with the party? Well, surprise, surprise, Dorian, murderous whispering in the Tory WhatsApp group uh, when it turns out that the kind of dilettantish, lying and not details oriented man who they elected to be their leader and prime minister turns out to be a dilettantish, lying and not very details oriented man in his role as prime minister. Uh, I, I think it's bizarre to me how Boris Johnson gets away with murder. Um, although I have no doubt that this will put him in worse stead within his own party. But if it had been another leader, for example, Theresa May, that was announcing the second lockdown after weeks and months of saying there would be no second lockdown, not allowing businesses to prepare for a second lockdown, then I think that, you know, the end of her tenure would be near. And yet Boris Johnson still remains as leader. I have no doubt that um, he's increasingly unpopular, but as to whether or not he's going to be kicked out or, or he's going to be booted out of number 10, I don't think we're there yet. But of course, if uh, Johnson had instituted the circuit breaker lockdown three weeks ago when Keir Starmer called for it, or even back in the late September when Sage called for it, thousands of people uh, would still be alive. So it, it, it just seems uh, that there's a, there's a certain atrocity, I think, also to his, uh, his politically motivated delay. Absolutely. And I mean, this, this is indicative of how terrible he is at making decisions. I mean, this has not only become apparent in the COVID crisis and how he's mishandled the pandemic, but it's also abundantly clear in the other big kind of thing that's facing the UK right now, the Brexit negotiations. If there isn't any sense of clear leadership and direction, and there isn't any sense that the central government with Johnson at its helm is making the decisions in the best interest of the public in a timely way. So I think there is nothing surprising here, although it is, of course, a terrible, you know, it's <laughs> a terrible way of governing the country. It's to be expected of Johnson, I believe. Also joining us, we have the Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, Miata Farnbiller. Hi, Miata. Hi, great to be here. 
Nice to have you. Um, Rishi Sunak announced the furlough scheme was to be extended through November for the new period of lockdown. He announced this uh, just as the old furlough scheme was about to expire. What are the consequences of him announcing it so late in the day and for such a limited time? I mean, look, it's good that he has extended it. Uh, I think it was a no-brainer. But, you know, doing it literally hours before the scheme was supposed to come to an end um, is pretty shocking because there will have been many thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of redundancy notices that had already been served. And, you know, for those people, there is not no going back. Now, you know, the Treasury will say, of course, you know, it's possible for their employers to basically retract the redundancies, but how many employers are going to do that? Um, and then for me, the kind of big issue is we know that this is likely to rumble on. Um, you know, it was always clear that this pandemic was still raging and the sorts of interventions and support we needed at the start of this, we still needed now. Um, and he really should be announcing a six month extension of furlough so that people can plan. And they know that whilst we're still in the eye of the storm of this thing, there is some of the economic support that we want. But for me, the big missing piece in all of this is that there will be many jobs that have been lost already and more that will be lost, even uh, with support like the furlough. And at the moment, the offer on social security is woefully inadequate. And, you know, that is the big blind spot for the government. They've got to think about ways in which they can bolster social security. The thing that my organisation has been talking about is a minimum income guarantee, £220 a week um, for every one so that those that are falling through the gaps at the moment are caught and have some sort of support because this is going to be tough it's going to be really really tough for many people out there and at the moment we're not seeing enough in order to try and mitigate the worst impacts of this today's special guest is james kirchick a conservative reporter author and columnist who was one of the first voices to cry never trump all the way back in 2016 he's the man who tweeted that everything trump says makes sense when you preface it with the words dollars from queens you're on the air Welcome to the bunker, James. How are your nerves? Uh, I'm I'm at peace. I have to say, I have I've made my peace with whatever the result will be. Well, that's very zen. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I think there's a lot of hysteria on on both sides, frankly, and I, you know, I try to get at that. I think in that tweet you mentioned, I think a lot of people interpret Trump a little. Uh, how should I put it? A little hyperbolically. Um, I'm not a fan of his. I, I didn't vote for him, certainly, and I hope he loses. Um, but I am not one of those who thinks that American democracy will end if he is reelected. So I've actually undergone some, you know, change in my in my attitudes over the past four years. Oh, interesting. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Um, what have you been What have you been up to in recent weeks during the campaign? I've actually been working on a book, a long term book project that isn't in any way related to this election or contemporary American politics. So I've actually been quite, um, maybe that's the reason why I'm at peace is because I haven't paying as close attention to this as most other people. But um, yeah, I've been sort of, uh, you know, peeking in occasionally reading the news, but not as much as I normally would, I would say. And this is a history of gay Washington, D.C.? Yeah, that's that's the, uh, the, <laughs> the short end of it. It's really much broader, I would say. It's almost a reinterpretation of American political history from World War II to the turn of the century, sort of looking through the prism of homosexuality as being something that was probably the worst secret you could have in Washington in terms of a political sense. It was worse than being a communist. It really ruined lives and had this enormous power over our political conversation. And so I'm 
it's a it's a historical examination of the development of 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 that phenomenon. This episode comes out on election day across America. Volunteers are phone banking, door knocking, doing everything they can to get voters to the polls. But in Britain, all we can do is sit and watch the results come in. Now more than ever, the result of an American election does not just affect Americans. If Trump wins, we all lose. Uh, I've been bullish about a Biden win for months. Over the weekend, I had my first full body panic. Uh, I don't quite know why, uh, but I suddenly got really freaked out. So I want to start by talking about election anxiety. Uh, James, Biden has the biggest election eve lead since Clinton in 96. 538, a website I visited once or twice every hour, uh, puts Trump's chances at just 10%. And even with a 2016-style polling error, Biden would still win. You said you were fairly zen about this, but clearly a lot of people are are terrified. Why do you think that is when when all the signs are really pointing in, in one direction? Why is everybody so freaked out this time? Well, there's another poll that you should be aware of. It was conducted by the Cato Institute that uh, came out a couple of weeks ago, which is a libertarian think tank. And it found something like 66% of conservatives say they are afraid to express their true political opinion. And something like 52% of moderate lib- liberals feel the same way. So, you know, you have the notion of shy Trump voters, which was clearly a factor in 2016. I would say that the, the social cost of being a Trump supporter now is great, is much greater than it was four years ago, particularly I would say since March and the George Floyd protests. So I just think that there's a, a large, a large gap, frankly, between what the sort of elite media, elite cultural leaders um, believe, because they basically, if, you, if you're just reading the New York Times and the Washington Post and watching CNN and MSNBC, you're not getting a real picture of what's happening in the country. And you know what? We actually knew that in 2016, right? Because the New York Times told us on the eve of the election, on election day, in fact, that Hillary Clinton had a 99% chance of winning. Are you, are you, are you saying that you think that that is, is, is off or? I don't know. I'm, I'm saying, I don't know. I'm agnostic on the polls. That, that, that's what I'll say. I'm skeptical. I'm agnostic. I'm not sure. Um, I don't take any comfort in what they say. Well, nobody uh, seems to seriously doubt that Biden will win the popular vote, uh, as Democrats have done in six of the last seven yeah. elections, all of them apart yeah. from 2004. I mean, does this show that the electoral college system uh, is untenable, that we keep going, we're going into an election and nobody thinks that Trump will win the popular vote, but there are still all these different ways that he could win? And, and therefore, you have government by minority. Is that, a, is, is that any way to run a country? Um, I am a supporter of the Electoral College. I think it made sense when it was created, and I think it and it makes sense now. I don't believe in uh, majority rule. Uh, I believe in a, a representative democracy with checks and balances, and one of those checks is the Electoral College and the Senate um, to ensure that you know the will of the majority is not always imposed upon the entire country. Um, and we have a notion of federalism uh, where we reserve a lot of power to our states. You ask if it's untenable. I mean, it may be untenable just in a pure, you know, prognosticatory sense in the fact that if, if Trump somehow does win the Electoral College again and lose the popular vote, that there may be such popular support for eradicating the Electoral College that it does somehow change. I think it's difficult to change it, though. I'm not... I'm not an expert on how that you'd have to go about doing it. I think it would, it would require something like two thirds of the state. I, th- I, th- I think you would need a constitutional amendment. I'm not sure. 
So I think it's going to be very hard to get to get rid of. But yes, I mean, look, there are costs to it in that you speak to younger people, right? And they've grown up, you know, they their first election that they remember was, you know, the 2000 election with George W. Bush losing the popular vote. And since then, they've seen Trump. And, you know, it, it, I, there, there is a sense or a fear that it instills a lack of confidence in our democracy if, if every or, you know, every other president um, is someone who's not elected by the majority of the people. So it's, it's something I grapple with. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, I, yeah. Um, James, voter suppression isn't just about Trump. It does appear to be, and, and, and for some time, GOP strategy. You're, you're sort of never Trumper. But do you go as far as the Lincoln Project, Stuart Stevens, who wrote this book, It Was All a Lie, and sort of say that Trump is, is really just the Republican Party with the mask off and what we complain about a lot with Trump once you get past the sort of surface tone problems, you know, are things that sort of Mitch McConnell does, that it's actually that the party is Trump and he's not this sort of aberration. As far as, you know, voter suppression goes, this is something that I think is a very complicated issue and is also afflicted by hyperbole. If you're a conservative, you, you don't you don't like Trump. You know, many people, uh, many of the never Trumpers would say that the, the party does not recover its sort of bearings, its integrity, unless Trump is defeated. And really, I suppose also, if, you know, if, if they lose the Senate, you know, that it, it takes something to kind of to get the party to perhaps reflect on on the path that is taken, particularly over the last four years. I mean, do you think that what what sort of future do you see uh, for the Republican Party? Does it does it need to be shocked into a, into a different direction? Would I like that to happen? I mean, I'm I'm torn because I agree that you know Trump is a is is, is an ogre and he's he's a monster and I can give you all the adjectives and nouns that everyone comes up with to describe how much I don't like the man. Um, at the same time, uh, and yeah, and, and and that would auger or that that would incline me towards wanting to see a landslide, you know, across the board defeat for him, so that the message is firmly implanted in the minds of Republicans that this was a mistake what you did. At the same time, uh, and yeah, and, and, and that would auger or that that would incline me towards wanting to see a landslide, you know, across the board defeat for him so that the message is firmly implanted in the minds of Republicans that this was a mistake, what you did. At the same time, I think the Democrats and the left have done a lot of things over the past four years that I don't like, particularly over the past six months, frankly. And I'm worried that if there is such a landslide victory for the Democrats, that they will be validated in everything that they've said and done and tried over the past four years. And so I'm, I'm really torn here in the middle that I, you know, I don't, I don't want this kind of great awakening that's now taken over the way the media has basically lost any sense of being an objective, you know, influence in our society. They basically sided with one team. These are all very bad developments that I don't like. They are, a reaction to Donald Trump. They are an overreaction to Donald Trump. And I worry that if there is a resounding victory, that there'll be no there'll be no need or impetus for reckoning on the left, that they will just say, oh, you know what? We did these things for four years. We called the president a white supremacist, you know, Russian agent who's an incipient Nazi dictator. Uh, and it worked. So we're just going to continue doing that for the next four years against any Republican. He is a white supremacist, though, like he is. Uh, so here's the thing. Five years ago, um, the terms white nationalism, white supremacy, and racism 
were, th- were widely understood by everyone to be three distinct terms and phenomena. So white nationalism means someone who believes in a white state, okay? So those guys who live in like Idaho uh, in, a, in the Aryan nations camp with like a thousand people, right? Those are white nationalists. Uh, Richard Spencer is a white nationalist, okay? White supremacy is, a, is, the, is the legal doctrine or the societal doctrine that white people explicitly should rule over non-white people. And this was the Jim Crow South, okay? George Wallace was a white supremacist. He wasn't a white nationalist because he didn't want to kick black people out of America or have white people have their own country. He wanted black people in his society, in his state of Alabama, to serve white people in a, in a, in a subordinate role, okay? So that's a white supremacist. A racist, which is, um, is much more common, okay? There are lots of racists in our society. You might have some in your family, um, I think Donald Trump is a racist, okay? I think being a, I think lying about the first black president's birthplace is racist. I think the way he talks about, you know, protecting suburban housewives from low-income housing, clear racist dog whistle tropes, okay? But it's not a white suprem- he's not a white supremacist. He is not enacting policies that are designed to privilege white people over non-white people. And in fact, it would be a very strange white supremacist president who would be presiding over the lowest level of black unemployment that this country has ever recorded and would repeatedly brag about it. Um, so again, like I think we should be able to acknowledge, yes, I think Donald Trump is a racist personally, and I think he appeals to white resentments, but he's not a white supremacist. Okay, well, I should disagree on that one. Um, Nina, how concerned are you about things that the prediction models can't account for, like voter intimidation, legal challenges to counting all the votes, I suppose, versus how concerned you are about uh, Trump having a legitimate, clear-cut path to victory. So I'm actually going to echo James here and say that I think it would be a mistake to look at the polls and assume that a Biden victory is a foregone conclusion. I mean, what 2016 taught us, uh, reminded us is, again, that the Electoral College determines victory, not the popular vote. So even though Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by over 3 million, you know, fewer than 40,000 voters in the states of Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania decided the victory for Trump. And if only, sorry, if only 40,000 of them had changed their vote on the day, it could have gone towards Hillary. So I don't assume that it's a foregone conclusion that Biden will win. Having said that, the I, the concept of voter intimidation, gerrymandering, all of this has been ongoing for a long time. But what is different in this election, of course, is the dynamics relating to COVID. So we already know that there's been a vast turnout in many of the states where people have sent in their mail-in ballots, record number of mail-in ballots. And we know that this is going to take a much longer time to count in certain states. You would imagine that certain states, all states would already have started counting the votes that have been mailed in. But that really depends on which state we're talking about. So in Mississippi, for example, they won't even start counting the votes until the entire election has ended. So of course, this leaves open a potential for legal challenges for the vote to be contested. And if you look at some of the tweets or the narrative that Donald Trump has been pursuing since the beginning of the year, that this is going to be a rigged election, he's made it clear in no uncertain terms that if victory isn't declared pretty soon for him, or if the voting process goes, the counting of the votes goes on for a long time, 
that he will he will effectively declare it a, a rigged election that's not in his favor. So I think the dynamic of the mail-in ballots is certainly going to cause, it, there's a potential for disruption in those kind of hours and days after the election. And it certainly looks like we won't know the result right away. Miata, there's an argument I've seen that this is a kind of Y2K bug scenario, that the fear of Trump stealing the election will make it less likely by galvanizing people to turn out. Um, I've also seen some of my friends go down some very dark paths uh, through the, through anxiety. I mean, do you think there are sort of good and sort of healthy and unhealthy kinds of fear uh, around an election like this? Absolutely, because I think, you know, the stakes are really, really high. Um, and, you know, the stakes, it's not just about America, uh, domestic policy, its place in the world. It has the kind of effect on uh, a lot of other countries. So I can understand why people are so terrified um, that this could be uh, an outcome that goes against what the polls are saying. And I think it can paralyze. Um, I think it absolutely can paralyze. But the good thing with an election is that there's something you can do. You can exercise your democratic rights. So Actually, getting the vote out, uh, voting yourself, I think, is a really empowering thing. And, you know, the turnout that we've seen already suggests that people are motivated and galvanised. You know, the big question is, how do you turn that political energy into something positive if you get the outcome that you don't want? So turning, I suppose, to the practicalities of listeners that might want to stay up and follow the election, because what could be more fun? Um, Nina, what time should viewers in the UK start following the election coverage if they actually want to get to the results rather than the the blather? <laughs> well, the coverage will start shortly before midnight. Um, and as for the actual results, I don't think we'll have a complete picture um, within on the same day. So on on the next day for us, there will be certain safe Trump states, which will be announced on the night. So states like Kansas, Utah, Idaho, I think we can expect a result. There'll be certain safe Biden states, which should call the race on the night, Oregon, New Mexico, Connecticut. And once again, I think the swing states that will almost definitely take a bit longer, like they did in 2016, are going to be Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And again, of course, the dynamic of the higher number of mail-in ballots is going to potentially mean that the election will take even longer to call this time around than it did last time. But are there some results you think that would change that, that would actually give you, you know, a clear idea of a winner in the night? I was thinking of, for example, Florida, which counts its ballots, counts mail-in ballots in advance. And for example, if Biden won Florida, would that would that change what you're saying? And, and it would actually give you, make you confident about a result on the night? Yeah. There, well, I don't know if I would say be confident about a result, but the swing states that we should know on the night that will definitely be important to determining the outcome of the election include Arizona, Florida, and Texas, uh, as well as Maine and Nebraska. They have 80 electoral votes in total. And depending on which way those states break, it might be an indicator of who will win. Um, Miata, what will you be looking out for on the night, if indeed you are staying up on the night? Um, you know, any sort of particular local races or things that the candidates and their outriders are saying? Uh, I don't think I'll be paying too much attention to what they're saying, because I think everyone will be sort of, flat, flat, uh, you know, speaking for their own side. Uh, but, but I think, you know, 
Florida, Pennsylvania, uh, you know, the, the seats that will be uh, absolutely, the states rather, that will be absolutely critical to swinging this uh, will be the ones that I think everyone will be watching, biting their nails. James, do you expect that we will we will know the winner, even though obviously all the votes will not be cancelled, counted, but we will know the winner on the night or by the end of the week or... I don't know, December. What would be your prediction? I think we might have an idea um, just because of the exit polls. Although, again, that's going to be very shaky because most people will have voted already. And so I'm not sure how accurate the exit polls can be. I think the exit polls are probably going to heavily uh, show support more for Donald Trump because more a larger percentage of his voters are voting on Election Day. So, in fact, I, I would not expect um, a real answer, at least for a couple of days, if not a week from Tuesday. Wow, that, that's a long time to stay up. I would suggest naps. Back here in Britain, the fallout from the EHRC report into Labour Party anti-Semitism continues. Polling from YouGov shows that 58% of Britons think suspending Corbyn was the right thing to do, with only 13% believing it was a mistake. Even among Labour voters, there was a 41-26 split in favour. Um, Miata, Westminster was uh, shocked when Corbyn was suspended on Thursday. That was, we should say, the decision of General Secretary David Evans rather than Keir Starmer. Well, I'm sure Keir Starmer knew about it. Um, can you explain uh, the party's reasoning for it? And do you agree? Yeah, I mean, look, it was a pretty punchy, um, bold thing to do to suspend the former leader of a party. Um, and I think the rationale for the party would be that you know, Labour were very, very clear that the report was pretty uh, damning uh, and that the only response was to be completely contrite, to apologise um, emphatically, to accept all the recommendations um, and to not seek to minimise uh, the problem. And I think because Keir had earlier said that there would be absolutely zero tolerance, which I think is right, um, and critically that included pretending that this wasn't a problem or trying to minimise the problem. And then when Corbyn came out uh, and responded in the way that he did. Um, and I think the key thing is not necessarily what he said, um, because, you know, he would argue what I was saying was, you know, making the factual point that when polled 30%, um, you know, the, when polled, the British public be believe that 30% of Labour uh, members are um, anti-Semites. And in fact, it's less than 1%. But, but I think the problem was his tone. I think the problem was the lack of contrition. You know, the only response to that kind of damning report was, I'm incredibly sorry, this happened in my watch. Um, it, it was completely wrong and mea culpa. And he was, there wasn't enough of that. So I think it put Labour in a really difficult position when they were trying to show uh, zero tolerance. And that was the reason, uh, because he wouldn't retract uh, the, the, the comments that he'd made, uh, that they suspended him. And do you think that he will go on to be expelled or do you think that the the sort of the snap suspension made the zero tolerance point and that there is that, that the party will actually be looking for to allow a way back? So, you know, I think uh, they probably, not least because of the blowback internally that they've got, they, you know, they probably want a way in which not to end up 
expelling him. Uh, but I think that in part depends on how he responds. Um, and it's interesting when you listen to Keir, he repeatedly says, you know, uh, I'd ask Jeremy to reflect on his comments. And I think if, you know, Jeremy were to come out and say, look, I shouldn't have minimised it. I'm incredibly sorry. This happened on my watch. It's a, a crying shame. It would make it much, much easier. I mean, the only other thing I would add um, is the politics of this. So, you know, it is a pretty... A contentious thing to have done uh, to have expelled him. It made every single uh, front page and probably wasn't the, the headlines that Labour wanted. But, but what it did do is that, you know, it definitely showed that Labour was under new leadership, uh, more so than the slogan will ever do. Uh, and it would have cut through in a way that very little that Keir has or could do would have cut through. And so the politics of this, you know, for people who, you know, really didn't like Jeremy's leadership and, you know, he was sort of Marmite. Some people liked him and some people really, really didn't like him uh, and turned their back on Labour because of that. If you were trying to make the point that you're under new leadership, suspending the former leader of the Labour Party on on, on an issue that um, has dogged the party and would have turned off a lot of people, uh, the optics of that is quite good. Now, the question is whether the fallout and the internal row was worth the political gain from showing a break. Um, and I think time will tell. Nina, Keir Starmer insisted there was no need for a civil war. But you've got Len McCluskey, once Corbyn's suspension to be overturned, with six other union leaders lined up behind him. 30,000 people have watched or streamed Momentum Stand with Corbyn virtual rally. Do you think this does have the makings of a civil war? Is this, is this a, is there, is there significant strength in the bring back Corbyn lobby? Or is this something that you think Starmer could could ride out? I think Starmer can ride it out. I think there is a certain vocal minority within the Labour Party. This is kind of those circles where criticism of Israeli policy is often too, has too often slid into anti-Semitic conspiracies about the sinister Jewish lobby and shadowy cabals of bankers and Rothschilds ruling the world. But I don't think that this feeling of bring Jeremy Corbyn back is actually something that's widespread amongst either Labour Party members or the public at writ large. I, I, I think the era of Jeremy Corbyn is probably coming to an end. And the uh, independent columnist John Rental wrote that this week could be the making of Keir Starmer's leadership with three things that are sort of unrelated. Corbyn's suspension, Boris Johnson's U-turn on the lockdown that Starmer had called for, and the potential election of a, of a friendlier president in Joe Biden. Do you agree? Does he does he seem like a like he's become he's a bigger figure because of well, recent think, events? Yeah, no, I think Stormer has the makings to be a potentially very good leader of the opposition, potentially even a prime minister. It's a shame for him that you know the next election is still quite a few years away, and a lot can still happen. Although, admittedly, the events of the past few weeks and months have definitely gone in his favor, but you know. Long time to go till the next election. Mieta, I wanted to ask you just something really quickly, just to come back to what you were saying. Do you think that Corbyn was provoking the new leadership with, with that statement? Or did he just not realise what his statement was doing? That's something that, that really did confuse me. 
I think I think it was a defense of him. You know, I think he he is generally an anti-racist. I think the whole issue of anti-Semitism, which, you know, I think probably Angela Reyna described it the best, is clearly a blind spot. He doesn't see it. And and because his credentials on fighting racism um, is so strong, he can't believe that it's associated with him. So he still takes it as a personal attack. And, you know, I think can't let go of the narrative of this is a really tiny problem that's been blown out of all proportion by my opponents uh, because it's personally really painful for him. And and so I think it was more that uh, than necessarily trying to, you know, uh, in, in any way contradict or wind up the new leadership. Um, and in fact, I gather that they'd spoken beforehand and Keir had made clear that he wasn't going to attack Jeremy personally. He was going to make about the process, about an institutional and systemic failure in labour. And in return, I think Jeremy was supposed to, you know, either be contrite or be quiet. Um, but I just don't think he could help himself because it's a defence of his legacy uh, and it goes against the thing that he has made his whole political career on. Um, and that's the, I think that's a genuine crying shame because I don't think he's a racist. I think he generally is someone that has always fought against racism and he just couldn't see this thing. Um, and he allowed those around him to act in ways that, quite frankly, they absolutely shouldn't have because they thought it was a political fight rather than the thing that it was, which was just something that was completely wrong um, and abhorrent and at heart racist. James, you've tweeted about why you think uh, Corbyn should be expelled. Um, how does uh, anti-sem- the issue of anti-Semitism play out differently um, in American politics? Because there isn't the same, there isn't like a Corbyn figure. It doesn't seem to be the same issue, but clearly there is an issue. How does it sort of operate in American politics, on 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 left, on right, wherever? Well, it's becoming more of an issue in American politics, unfortunately. You know, it had usually been solely or mostly a right-wing phenomenon, obviously, uh, in the United States. But increasingly, we see it now on the left, um, and in particular in kind of the same ways that it was manifesting in Britain, right? In the inst- in kind of the elite institutions, academia. And there's a number of members of Congress who have said uh, anti-Semitic things, which is you know, a relatively new phenomenon, certainly hasn't happened in, in my living memory. And so I think it's, it's, becoming, um, it's, it's becoming more visible in our country in a worrying way, but not to the extent that, you know, an entire political party uh, would, would, be, would be captured by the ideology in the way that the Labour Party, certainly not the membership of the party was, but certainly the kind of cabal around Corbyn and his diehard supporters, I think are very wedded to this ideology, unfortunately. Finally, where were you on the night of November the 8th, 2016, as Donald Trump passed 278 electoral college votes and Clinton conceded the election? How did our panellists feel? Uh, James, we'll start with you. Where were you uh, on that night back in 2016? Well, I was uh, I was at the Washington Post election party, uh, and I was gutted, obviously. And in fact, I, I I appeared on the BBC at some god awful hour in the morning. I think 6 a.m. the next day. Uh, so you can probably find that. And I'm unshaven, and and my eyes are bleary. Um, but yes, it was a very it was a very shocking, uh, frightening time, frankly. Um, largely because uh, it was so um, unexpected. I mean, no one in my circle thought he had any chance of winning. Um, I certainly didn't think he had any chance of winning. Uh, And to have it happen was just a very rude awakening. 
And what do you, what what do you think he's he's? I mean, it's a it's a big it's a big question. What do you think he's sort of done to America or revealed about America in his during his presidency? Um, I think he's revealed many things. I think he's revealed the power of celebrity. Um, I think in the in the allure of celebrity. I think he's revealed the lack of authority and influence that our media has, frankly. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why the media hates him so much is because he has sort of revealed them to be almost emperors without clothes by showing how little they knew about their own country, how unprepared they were for his victory. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm ashamed and sad to say that I don't think the media has really learned much of anything over the past four years from its mistakes. They still seem to be covering Trump and the Trump phenomenon um, with the same sort of blinders, I think, that led to his winning the first time, by which I mean the sort of obsession with Russiagate, um, which I think there's a, there's a corollary in your country with Cambridge Analytica, which I believe that that story was just revealed to have been, you know, a house of cards. Um, and in many ways, Russiagate, which I'm, which unfortunately also had a British provenance and Christopher Steele in the Steele dossier, um, the sort of obsession with Russiagate, the kind of tissue of exaggerations and conspiracies that surrounded Donald Trump and Russia, um, the obsession which this, uh, which with the media pursued this story, the extent to which many people in this country still believe that Donald Trump is a Russian agent of some kind. Um, that's a real failing on the part of the media. Um, the same, I would say, also with sort of the frame, the narrative frame of looking at him as an incipient dictator, which was one that I also shared. I thought that he had the ability to maybe turn America into some sort of form of dictatorship or that he could, he could rule as, as a dictator. Um, I think that's, and I basically wrote that and said that repeatedly during the 2016 election. I think it's crazy. And I think it's, it's, um, leading many people into abject hysteria, um, and I and I really wish that I really wish that our intellectuals would would think twice or think harder before they wrote and said some of the things that they that they have said over the past four years. Nina, what were you doing on the night of the win? I was at the Bethnal Green Working Man's Club at the election party there, and uh, progressively as the night or early morning wore on, it was quite clear that um, Clinton had lost the election. So I just remember it getting emptier and emptier and people getting more and more depressed and drunk. So uh, I remember that quite well. One of your specialisms is disinformation. Do you think the situation, I mean, and there's many, many sources of that, including, sorry, James, Russia. Um, do you think the situation would be as bad without a president and his Twitter feed? Um, creating so much disinformation, will that be one of his legacies? Well, it will be a part of his legacy because he's incredibly influential and social media has been an incredibly powerful tool for Donald Trump. And he has said that himself. He has said that if he had no Twitter, you know, there would be no President Trump. Um, I think that the way that our information ecosystem is constituted means that there is increasingly disinformation and misinformation being pushed from all sides, whether it's by foreign actors or domestic actors, and it actually comes from across the spectrum. And the sad result of that is that 
the general public and the voting citizens lose confidence in the entire electoral and political system, um, whether you know they are on, on the left or the right. And I think you see that quite clearly in America right now. Miata, where were you uh, when you found out that Trump had won? Uh, I was home uh, with my husband uh, watching the news in complete horror uh, and disbelief. And I have to say, uh, since then, I every election or referendum, I don't go out. I watch it at home in my pyjamas and just hope for the best. Well, last time, the one grain of hope uh, that was that was offered up was that Trump's victory would inspire a new wave of political uh, engagement. Um on the left, in, in the centre, in fact, which indeed it has. If it happened again, is there any kind of silver lining you could you could rustle up? Um, well, this is. Look, I think. It, I was going to say this is I Mission it, Impossible. It is, um, and I'm the perennial optimist. Uh, I think it will be tough. I think it'll be really tough. But I think the thing that those on the progressive side, and that's actually across left and right, will have to do is dust themselves down. Um, I think they've got to understand uh, the appeal that he has. They have to find different ways of mobilising and engaging with people um, and an offer and a proposition that can counter the lure of Trump, you know, without the substance. So I think, you know, the the only thing that can galvanise coming out of this is focusing on the project that has to be put in place in order to make sure... um, him or others that, if you like, propagate that form of politics are never so dominant. And, you know, that's going to be hard because the first instinct is just going to be disbelief and horror. Uh, but but that has to be the focus coming out of it. Well, I was in New York while I was interviewing Q-Tip from Try Call Quest, who had, a, had an album out. And I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to watch Hillary Clinton win in the hotel. And then I'll get to interview him the next day and it'll be a really nice framing for the story. And then that did not happen. And I went and stood glumly in Times Square, hoping that maybe the results were different on the really big TV and stayed up, couldn't sleep, stayed up all night, kind of reading Twitter, you know, British Twitter. Then had to go and interview Q-Tip, which is a very miserable, weird interview. But that night there was a launch party uh, and it was kind of like a hip hop uh, event. and. It was so cathartic just to sort of dance and to be around a lot of people who were kind of not depressed or, or, you know, trying not to be depressed. And I think one of the great sort of sadnesses of this is that that whether you need to sort of cheer yourself up or indeed to celebrate a Biden win, you can't do it. (laughs) I mean, I suppose you could rush out on Wednesday. Wednesday night is the last night before the lockdown. But I just remember how important it was to be around other people. And I think there's just something about the isolation of the way that, that that we have to live at the moment, um, which sort of takes away that little kind of release valve, which I know is really, really important to me. We've come to the end of this week's podcast. Thank you to our panel, Nina Schick. Thank you. Thank you to Miata Farnbiller. Thanks for having me on. And to our guest, James Kerchick. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. And I will be doing double duty on Oh God, What Now?, the podcast formerly known as Romaniacs, on Friday with uh, America Willing, a new president to talk about. If you're staying up on election night, you can join me on Twitter at Dorian Linsky. Don't forget, you can back the bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. If you back us, you will get a thank you on the show. And here are some now. 
hello and many thanks from me to Becky Wordsworth, Yonin Lynch and Helena Thomas. Thanks and best wishes from me to Ruth Henrik, Lucy Harold, and Kurt Forrester. And thanks from me to Stuart Clemenson, Serena Wilson and Simon Whiteside. Take care and see you on the other side. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Nina Schick and Miata Fanbler. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.